All right. I'm sure you've heard it said, God is more concerned about your holiness than your happiness. Raise your hand if you've heard that. God is more concerned about your holiness than he is about your happiness. And there's a lot of truth in there. But did you know that God wants you to be happy? In fact, you were created for happiness. The Westminster Divines, in their wisdom, as these scholars and pastors studied God's Word, and they were trying to figure out the answers to a number of questions, came to the question, what is the chief purpose of man? What is our chief purpose? And their answer, based upon Scripture, is twofold. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Our God is a happy God who wants you and me to be happy forever. That's great news. The bad news is, is most of us are not happy. Most people are unhappy. Most people are chronically unhappy. A number of years ago, I believe it was 2007, but I could be wrong, uh, the New York Times wrote an article entitled, Happiness 101. Some of you may be familiar with it. It was the, the cover story on their magazine. And in it, they made the claim that people, by and large, try to find happy in their happiness in their circumstances, attainments, or their things. And once we taste a little bit of happiness, we get on what's known as the hedonic treadmill, sort of hedonism, and we're chasing happiness on this treadmill. But kind of like a treadmill, you're exerting energy, but you're getting nowhere. Because the principle that applies is, as we get more, so too does our, as we attain more and all of our acquisitions arise, guess what's rising up with them? Our expectations and desires. There's a correlation to the degree of your expectation and desire with the stuff you have, which is why many of you make far more money now than you did when you started out when you were 18. But has your happiness level quantifiably multiplied in the same extent that your income has? I doubt it. I doubt it. We want to be happy, but we are on a treadmill. For many of us, we get happy for a moment, but our happiness lasts about as long as a North Korean missile test. <laughs> Cheap shot, what can I say? <laughs> and for those of you who don't know the news, that means it, it blows up almost immediately, okay? <laughs> All right. We're happy, but because our happiness is based upon getting more and more, we continually think that it's just out of reach. We want it. And so the lesson of discipleship has been those desires you want, that you, you're pursuing with such vigor and energy, they're not going to do it for you. You're not going to be happy. Oh, for a minute, you'll taste it, but it's gone. It'll vanish in your mouth. But the old self and our old expectations and our old desires dies hard. It dies harder than Bruce Willis. 
Okay. Okay, that's my only gratuitous movie quote. All right. We are convinced that the way to be happy is to have our will done. Every single one of you has an idea of what it will take for you to be happy. And you pursue it. You're angry when you can't get it. You're frustrated when an obstacle comes that keeps you from it. For us, there's this thing called ambition. Ambition, this notion, that greatness, that achievement, that happiness and acceptability and access and influence and all that stuff is just right there in front of me. And if I just press a little harder... I can get it. But here's the deal. You can't have the world's treasures without playing by the world's rules. And this world, in its narcissistic way, has taught us over and over and over that it's all about me. It's all about me. And so you can read now articles, and books, and blogs, and studies, which all say the same thing. We have increasingly become a people who are incapable of love. Incapable of love. We are so narcissistic in our focus and orientation and outlook that the concept of love, while Appealing, in practice, is an impossibility for many. Why? Because love is always and inherently others-oriented. Love always and necessarily requires sacrifice. And this means that it is opposed to a worldview and an outlook that is me-focused. That same article... Happiness 101, that talked about that treadmill that so many people are on, reported that the people who are the happiest and most content actually manage to get off the treadmill and find their happiness in other people's happiness. Doing acts of service. Focusing on other people, and they find their own contentedness within that. Think about it for a moment. All the clawing and scratching and fighting and biting and wrestling and punching we do to edge our way a little bit closer to the trough. The people that you've met who are the most happy, the most content, are people who have learned to find their happiness in something other than the attainment of things. We need help. If there is any hope for any of us, we must be set free from this cycle. This treadmill must be busted up and we must get off of it. But how? Well, today we conclude the section in Mark that began back in chapter 8. Beginning in chapter 8, Going through chapter 10, in each of these chapters, 8, 9, 10, there's a prediction of Jesus' coming suffering. And after each prediction, there's a a story of the disciples failing to get what that means, followed by some teaching moments for Jesus. So these three chapters, 8, 9, and 10, constitute some of the most intense discipleship in the book of Mark. 
as Jesus tries to show us that what he wants for us is something better. And this repeated announcement of his coming suffering serves as the catalyst for this instruction. But today, what Jesus does here in these verses is answer two questions. It answers the question of purpose. Why did he come? And then second, why does the reason for Jesus' coming affect us? Or how does it affect us? In this passage, we see the purpose of Jesus' ministry. And this purpose is spelled out at the end. It says he came to serve and to be a ransom for many. As a quick aside, the fact that it says he came points to his pre-existence. He was somewhere else, and then he arrived here. He wasn't created for this. He came for this. He came to be a ransom for many. Over the years, many people have tried to construe the reason for Jesus' coming. Oh, he came to overthrow oppressive social ethics. He came to establish a new priority for how people should treat each other. That's not true. He came principally to die. John Piper in 2006 wrote a great book called 50 Reasons Jesus Came to Die. One great purpose, he came to die, and he is able to find a number of reasons. But that's his primary purpose. He came to die. And he came to die for you and for me. It says he came to serve, which is phenomenal. We're going to look at that in a second. But he came to be a ransom for many. This passage teaches the substitutionary atonement that we read about in Isaiah 53. What do I mean? Well, the Greek has a number of words that could have been used for the word for. He came to be a ransom for. For many. But the word that is used here for the word for is the Greek word anti, which means instead of. It's Jesus being the ransom instead of the many. Now, in our cultural context, we think of a ransom as something you pay to a kidnapper, okay? Someone who's been illegitimately obtained or detained, or captured, and you have to pay basically money to this criminal to let him go. Back in that day, a ransom was what you had to pay for freedom of a slave, of a POW, or if you were foolish with your money and you got yourself into prison, that was the money that was paid to secure your release. And it says that Jesus came to do that for many. Now there are a few highlights that this points out to us. If Jesus came to serve, what does that say about us? It means that we needed to be served. We needed helped. All of us, we are trying to find our way and our meaning through our actions, through the attainment of goods. We have become, in fact, blind and helpless. And we are floundering around, and so Jesus comes to help. As our prophet, he helps us by revealing God, 
by revealing what God expects, by revealing a better way. As our king, he first keeps us in check because we are like children who will act foolishly and harm ourselves. And he protects us from all the forces that would threaten us. But then as our priest, he helps us by offering the perfect offering to the perfect offeree made by the perfect offerer himself. Apart from his help, we could never approach God. We would just be floundering, worshiping idols, pursuing false dreams, enslaved to everything. But Jesus comes to help and set us free because we needed to be set free. We needed to be ransomed. You see, because of our sin, we were alienated from God. And this alienation from God created a situation in which we were then subject to all the tyranny of the devil. And so this is why John 8 says that we became slaves to our sin. Galatians 4 says that we were slaves to the elemental principles of this world. And we were slaves to these idols. Slaves. We think we're free. We live kind of like people in the matrix, thinking that we're free, when in actuality, we're in bondage. That is why there's this treadmill. You think you're pursuing your happiness, and if people would just get out of my way and give me what I want, I'll be happy. But we're a slave, and we will never find it. We live oppressed by the rules of, of society. You think society now is more free? It's more repressed. People flaunt immorality. But free thought and expression is going down the tubes. People live in constant fear of being shamed. Shaming, that's a concept that I didn't even hear 10 years ago. The rise in bullying, shaming, all these expectations. And so we conform our behavior accordingly to get by. And then we live in pursuit of whatever it is that has set up shop in our heart, pursuing it, offering it our service and adoration, and we will never, ever find happiness that way. It flees from us. All of us are in this predicament, and we needed ransomed we needed delivered someone had to pay the price that we could never pay to free us from all this tyranny and that's what jesus came to do and this shows how god desperately loves you god the father was not willing that you should perish and god the son was not willing that you should perish. And God the Spirit was not willing that you should perish. And so the Trinity took up counsel. And we have the covenant of grace, wherein the Father has willed the Son to be an atonement for his people. And the Son has said, Yes, Father, I accept it. And the Spirit has agreed to apply all of Christ's work to us. That's the covenant of grace. 
And that's for you. Now, many of us do many things for other people. And usually we do it begrudgingly. For example, we need some people to help teach VBS. We need some people to help teach Sunday school. And if I goad you enough, some of you will say, okay, fine. I'll do it. Ugh. But Jesus loves you so much and to such a degree that he knows what he has to do and he's not mumbling and grumbling about it. Back in Luke, we learned that Jesus had set his face for Jerusalem. That's like a total statement of commitment. He was all in. I love those old John Wayne movies. You know, when he gets, he does that John Wayne, when he's focused and he's like, and he's like he means business and he does that unique John Wayne walk. You know what I'm talking about? Like, and I'm imagining Jesus doing this. He is on a mission and he's moving. And that amazes the disciples here. They're amazed. Now, usually they're amazed at what he says or some miracle he performs, but here it's just him. The way he's walking is a source of amazement to them because he's a man on a mission. And his mission is to take your sins and bury it in the ground. You were on his mind. And it said the others were afraid. Why were they afraid? Well, things were out ahead. In John, we learn that the Pharisees had already decided and had announced that anybody who identifies with Jesus, anybody, is going to be expelled from the synagogue. And they knew that the Pharisees were trying to kill him. So that's a source of fear. What's going to happen when he rolls into town? But then, of course, there's that part of the crowd that believes Jesus is the Messiah. And as we know from our study, the only people that Jesus really talked to and explained the true nature of his Messiahship were the twelve. So everybody else who thought he was the Messiah, they would think in terms of their cultured understanding, which is he was a conquering king who was going to overthrow the Romans, who was going to drive out all the evildoers from Israel. But what does that mean practically? It means there's going to be a war. So Jesus is rolling into town to take up his kingdom. There's going to be a war. Do you see why some of them are afraid? They don't know what's going on. But in the midst of it, Jesus takes a moment to tell his disciples yet again, this is what is going to happen. This is what's about to go down. He tells them again and again and again. Because he understands human nature. And that is, it doesn't seem to matter how many times you know something is true. In the moment of crisis, we panic. And we forget that God is in control. Jesus wants his people to know this is all part of the plan. Be at peace when this happens. I am on a mission. I must lay down my life as a ransom. For many. He loved you so much that he was on point for you. And you needed his help, so he came. You needed him to pay a price that you could never pay, and so he did. And then, 
when all seems like it's going to be just Jesus doing the work, we have this episode of the disciples saying, once again, Jesus, I know you just talked about dying, but we have a favor to ask of you, Lord. Do you guys begin your prayers this way? Jesus, I want you to do for me whatever I ask you. Is that how you begin? Maybe, maybe not. Once again, we see James and John. They're on this treadmill. They think that the way to be happy is to get more stuff. In this case, they want prestige and power and position. They're thinking in terms of all the benefits associated with Christ, even as Jesus is saying to them, the way of Christ is to live for other people. And of course, the ten are angry because, wouldn't you know it, they wanted it too. So Jesus addresses them. The rulers of this world lord it over people. But in my kingdom, if you're going to be great, you have to be a deacon. What he says. You have to be a servant. If you're going to be great, you've got to be a servant. Now understand this, service was not a value in their day. Plato had said that a person who had to be a servant couldn't possibly be happy living for someone else's agenda. But even more from that, whoever would be first, whoever would be preeminent, that person has got to be a doulos, a slave, even more degraded. The ethics of the kingdom are such that Taking Jesus as the role model. The more exalted you would be, the more abased you must become. And we think, how is that possibly, possibly the road to greatness? How is that possibly the road to happiness? Because Jesus understands that the human heart, with its grip around the notion of its will being done, will never, ever, ever satisfy you. We have these idols we serve. Money, fame, happiness. They can't satisfy. And it's only in giving up these pretensions and stepping back and saying, you know what? Jesus was willing to step back. I must follow him. Only then do you find true happiness. It is only in letting go of these claims and clinging instead to the notion that the greatest thing we can do is to follow Christ and give up our own will for his, for the good of other people. Old man John got it. See, right now John's a hothead. He's like many of us. He's a hothead. He wants it. But decades later, Old man John writes this in 1 John 1.16, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Old man John came around. He understood that what Jesus was talking about all along was that you will not find contentment. You will not find peace. You will not find happiness until you Get off that treadmill. And Jesus came to make a breach. 
He derailed it. He's busted the mechanisms. You've got to step off of it and accept the freedom he offers. As it says in Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set you free. So do not be ensnared again with a yoke of slavery. Jesus Christ came to die, to be a ransom for many, to pay the penalty that we could never pay, to secure a freedom that we could never secure for ourselves so that we could get off that silly treadmill and find true freedom, true happiness and peace in Him. And then, of course, in the final day, get the reward. For Jesus Himself, after the agony comes the glory. And so too it is with us. Will you trust Him? Will you trust him or will you say, no, no, my heart is too convincing. I need what I need and I know what I want. I'm going to go for it. Or will you say, you know what, Jesus? You're right. Those are idols. And it's keeping me from the very thing I want. And I'm going to let it go. And I'm going to give up these pretensions, these ambitions, and recognize that everything I need has been given to me by you. And then I'll be free. And in my freedom, I can serve. And in my service, I'll become great in your sight. Isn't that what you wanted all along? Let's pray.